from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't like who I could. not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. This is the Blitz at Six. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Thursday, May 21st. Thanks for hanging out this morning. It will be a jam-packed hour. The Seahawks reportedly offering Pro Bowl running back Devonta Freeman a one-year deal. What does this mean for how that running back room is shaping up and the injury Rehab process for Chris Carson for Rashad Penny. We'll discuss that. Also, some good news. NBA teams expecting that the league office will issue guidelines around June 1st that will allow franchises to start recalling players, which is just yet another step, a positive momentum toward a ramp up for the resumption of this season. We'll discuss the details there here from Adrian Morjanowski on that. Plus, college football with a unique challenge facing them. Ohio State Athletic Director Gene Smith said yesterday that his department is run several models to consider having fans in the stands at games this fall and said that they predict they could have 20 to 22,000 fans. So we'll hear from that and how college football is approaching this if competitive balance will exist because of some states being able to open sooner than later. And finally, ESPN's Bill Barnwell ranking all 32 teams and the work they did this offseason. Why did the Seahawks land at number 26? All ahead in this hour right now. Let's get to your headlines. The Seahawks reportedly offered a Pro Bowl running back Devonta Freeman a one-year deal, according to ESPN's Vaughn McClure. He tweeted this out yesterday saying, Source confirmed former Falcon Devonta Freeman has a one-year offer from Seattle. Will be interesting to see if he's in a Seahawks uniform for the opener at Mercedes-Benz Stadium against his ex-teammates. Now, what's not clear, according to ESPN's Brady Henderson, too, if Seattle's offer is still on the table. But as we know, Chris Carson and Rashad Penny both coming off of season-ending injuries. So perhaps they could be looking for a little reinforcement there as well. Carson expected to be ready week one. Penny may take a little bit longer. We heard that from Pete Carroll this offseason. 28-year-old Freeman has been a free agent since Atlanta released him in March. Keep you updated on any more news tidbits we get on that. NBA teams are expecting the league office will issue some guidelines around June 1st. And these guidelines would allow franchises to start recalling players who have left their markets uh, and be a first step towards actually ramping up the season and its resumption. Some some players have even, against the guidelines of Adam Silver and the league, left the country um, because, you know, they're uh, maybe wanting to see their families or go home. But that would be an involved process to get people back into the country as well. So June 1st could be that date. Teams also expecting a timeline similar to that from the league on when they'll be allowed to expand individual workouts that are already underway in markets where those are allowed and and social distancing guidelines allow for them and that these would include more team personnel. The NBA suspended the season back on March 11th because of the coronavirus pandemic. They're the first pro uh, sports league 
to do so after that positive test for Rudy Gobert. The league is discussing a step-by-step plan for resuming the season that includes an initial two-week recall of players into their marketplaces uh, for a period of quarantine, one to two weeks of individual workouts at team facilities, and a two- to three-week formal training camp, according to the ESPN report. NBA owners, executives, and uh, the Players Association also believing Adam Silver will greenlight the return to play in June, with games expected to resume sometime before the end of July. This, of course, barring any setbacks and uh, in in the coronavirus pandemic at this point. But uh, as I mentioned, uh, even some players, many players have stayed in market or, or returned for individual workouts with teams, but some players return to Europe or elsewhere abroad during the league's hiatus. So that could be an involved process. Adrian Wojnarowski, the ESPN NBA insider, he was on SportsCenter last night discussing uh, the plans to return. Teams are preparing that they're going to start recalling their players in the marketplace. Many players have returned, have stayed at marketplace, are working out of facilities, Many more around the league have to return, and the league is not going to call the players back to quarantine and then start to ramp up uh, for training camp unless they've made the decision to move forward on resuming the season. And barring something unforeseen, Sage, at this point, that is the league's plan to move forward and play games again this season and try to crown a champion. Okay, so that's significant news. Ten days away from June 1st, from us learning a little bit more. What else still really needs to be worked out here? What it's going to look like. There's a lot to be worked out between the league and the Players Association. The union has to sign off on uh, really anything they do here. And teams are anxious and, and players are anxious to know what is the format and structure going to look like. Are all 30 teams going to be brought back? Are there going to be regular seasons? Will there be a play-in tournament leading into the playoffs? How many teams would be in a playoff tournament? Will there be a best-of-seven series in each round, etc.? That has got to be collectively bargained between the league and the Players Association, and those meetings are ongoing this week. Woj was also on Spain & Co. yesterday uh, talking about how they plan, the NBA does, on keeping players safe. The league's feeling is, can they create an environment where the players are no more at risk of getting sick than they would living their normal life, going to the grocery store, going wherever a player might be going around, the way you and I might be going around. Can they create an environment where, they're, where they are in isolation, relative isolation, uh, for the rest of this season and, um, and feel that the risk isn't any greater than, than, than where they would just be at home? Woj also saying the NBA could play more than just the playoffs this year. Yesterday, uh, Ohio State Athletic Director Gene Smith said that his athletic department has run several social distancing models to consider having fans in the state in the stands at games this fall. Here was Gene Smith. So obviously, we're fortunate uh, with a hundred thousand seats in the stadium. Could we uh, implement the current CDC guidelines? Uh, state guidelines around physical distancing, uh, mass requirements, and all those type of things in an outdoor environment and have uh, obviously significantly less fans than uh, what we are used to, I think is possible. So I I just feel like we have the talent and skill and the the space capacity uh, to provide an opportunity for a certain number of fans to 
have access to our particular stadium. With a seating capacity of over 100,000, Ohio Stadium, one of the largest in the country uh, for college football. And Smith said that according to their models, uh, they could hold a crowd close to twenty to 22,000 fans and up to forty to 50,000 if guidelines are relaxed. We have played a little bit with the social distancing concept, and we know that that probably would take us down south of, of 30,000 30, fans in the stands, actually closer to 20 to 22. So we played with that a little bit as a framework to start uh, as we move forward and think about what we ultimately be allowed to do. To determine who would get access to those seats, he said they would use a point system they already have in place. Gene Smith also mentioning, though, that they can come back in July and be fine, that there's no need to rush this, according to him. Well, I, I think July, like somewhere in early July. We need to not rush this, and I know everyone is, is anxious to do that, uh, but we need to, to have the opportunity for uh, our medical experts to continue to collect data, see how our human behavior responds in the reopening environment across the country. Uh, we can look state by state, but uh, we need to take into consideration uh, not just Ohio, but all other states. And so we, uh, we need to allow time, uh, which in my view uh, may take all of June. Of course, college football in a really interesting position because under the guise of amateurism, at least, these are not professional athletes. And uh, that's a big ask if students aren't on campus to have student athletes. Is it safe for student athletes to be there if it's not safe for students to be on campus? Laura Rutledge yesterday or this morning, actually, joining Golick and Wingo and talking about the idea of having limited amount of fans. This is something that's been discussed by several schools. Gene Smith didn't just pull this out of a hat because it's definitely being talked about amongst ADs and amongst these decision makers and has been for a while. I think there were some that were bullish on the idea of, no, we're just going to prepare as if we're having full capacity fans and that that's how we're going to operate and then more and more people are realizing you know that may not be possible maybe it is and, and maybe it is in some places and in other places you have to see social distancing in stadiums and there's tons of plans of how they might do this some people i've talked to have said you know they would try and require all fans to wear masks that you can't necessarily legally do that in some of these states it just depends on how all of these lawmakers are operating in various states We'll hear more from Laura later in this hour on college football and how certain conferences are ready to vote on wanting to come back and how that might create a competitive disadvantage. But up next on The Blitz, Bill Barnwell running through all 32 teams in the NFL and ranking the work they did this offseason. The Seahawks landed at number 26. Why 26? How did the rest of the NFC West fare as well? We'll discuss. It's next on The Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines Studio, this is The Blitz. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Thursday, May 21st. Thanks for hanging out with me today. As we dig through the offseason and get ready for maybe perhaps a much different look looking regular season when it comes to 
Will there be fans in the stands? How many fans in the stands will there be? Still, the off-season proceeding uh, pretty regularly. Uh, if you leave out the addition of the virtual draft, Bill Barnwell of ESPN ran through all 32 teams and ranked the work they did during the player acquisition period of the offseason from worst to first. So we're going to discuss where the Seattle Seahawks landed, and that would be at number 26. Uh, Now, things that Bill Barnwell took into account, he said he compared the team's roster, cap situation, and future draft capital at the beginning of the offseason to what they have in May. He said the most important thing a team can do is add talent, so those teams that made big inroads in improving their roster will rank highly while those that saw key departures will, uh, without replacements will not. He said he also considered how each attacked their specific needs, how well they read the market and handled the financial side of their deals, and what they did to create future draft picks. So with all of that criteria in mind, the Seahawks landing at number 26 on Barnwell's list. Under what went right, he said the Seahawks added significant O-line depth, Resigning Mike Upati, also B.J. Finney, Brandon Shell, Cedric Obwehi, and Chance Warmack. At one point, uh, uh, having it felt like a, a thousand offensive linemen on uh, on their uh, roster before they also drafted Damian Lewis in the third round. But he did mention a thin depth chart at wide receiver behind starters Tyler Lockett and D.K. Metcalf, and being able to add a steal in Philip Dorsett on a one-year deal for the veterans' minimum. Minimum. They also added some modestly priced depth on the defensive end side of things, according to Barnwell, by sent, signing Benson Mayo and Bruce Irvin. Bruce. And they made what looked like an excellent trade in acquiring cornerback Quentin Dunbar from Washington for a fifth round pick. Now, in what went wrong, Bill Barnwell noting that Dunbar's near term future is a little bit uncertain at this point after uh, he was charged with four counts of armed robbery last week. He pled not guilty. Earlier this week, we heard from his attorney on with John Clayton that uh, he believes his client will be acquitted of all those charges. And Barnwell noting the Seahawks will be able to get by without him, but they still haven't acquired a primary pass rusher after letting Jadevian Clowney depart this offseason. Former first overall pick is still a free agent, but Seattle, according to Barnwell, was 30th in adjusted sack rate with him and could be even worse without him. Uh, the two-year, $23 million deal the team gave uh, Jaron Reed had a player-friendly structure. While it's obviously too early to make huge predictions, Barnwell noted about draft picks. Seattle's first-round selection of Jordan Brooks was widely seen as a stretch for both the player and the positional value. And he said the Seahawks have pro- proved sorry, broader consensus wrong in the past. Quarterback Russell Wilson and DK Metcalf coming to mind when it comes to that, but Brooks will have to uh, overcome a lot, and there will also be a lot of pressure placed on him, according to Barnwell. Most of the offensive linemen, he said, uh, weren't, quote, very good in other places, with Finney as an exception. The one-year, $7 million deal the Seahawks gave Greg Olson was also a lot for a 35-year-old tight end with one healthy season over his past three years. Colin Cowherd joined Tom, Jake, and Stacy yesterday. We've uh, heard him be pretty passionate about the Russell Wilson rumors this past week involving uh, Cam Newton potentially coming here. And then the rumor that was floated uh, by Chris Sims about the Seahawks wanting to trade Russell Wilson to the Browns. Uh, at least something that he heard allegedly that 
uh, they were willing to trade him for a first round pick or at least took those phone calls. But Colin Cowherd was passionate about his defense of Russell Wilson. And he spoke with Tom Jake and Stacy yesterday about those offensive weapons and saying that Russell has basically overcome the Seahawks offensive approach known as having kind of what you would call like Kyle Shanahan offense or Andy Reid creative play designing. That's not Pete's thing, right? He hands the offense over. So I, I think Russell has largely outperformed the schemes. I mean, he's got 100 touchdowns in the last three years. That's touchdown passes. That's 50 more than the next closest quarterback, Tom Brady. In about 10 minutes, we'll hear more from Colin Cowherd on Russell Wilson this offseason and uh, and some of those quarterback rumors. But according to Barnwell, what the Seahawks could have done differently, he would have liked to see them trade out of the first round, trade back from number 27, but he acknowledges that there might not have been much of a market for that, and we heard as much. The Packers moved up to 26 to draft Love, and after that, no team moved up in the draft until the Colts did so at number 41. Maybe people feeling more conservative this year because of all of the even technical aspects of executing a trade in a, in a virtual draft year. Uh, taking a player at a more significant position, though, would have made sense to Barnwell. He would have liked to see offensive tackle Isaiah Wilson or defensive end Yeder Gross-Matos uh, being taken there by Seattle. The depth approach he noted to its offensive line has been interesting, and uh, Shell in particular appears likely to start at right tackle, but on a two-year, $9 million price tag, he said he would have liked to see the Seahawks try to finally find a pass-protecting tackle for Wilson by going after Brian Balaga. What's left to do, according to Barnwell, is bring back Clowney. A one-year reunion might make sense for both parties at this point. Seattle having about $15 million in cap space, and he also noted that Schneider could clear out $5.4 million by releasing backups, uh, Jacob Halster and David Moore, and having offensive weapon, moving some of the offensive weapons off the roster and adding to the offensive line. Mark Schlereth was on yesterday, too, and he had some thoughts on the offensive line and uh, having so many starters, as many as four starters, how that might affect their offense. Plus, on playing base defense, which has been a huge topic of conversation, so I'll play you more from Mark Schlereth as well. That's next on The Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you. A lot has been made of the Seahawks pass rush this offseason. Jadevian Clowney Watch 2020 still very much on. Mark Schlereth joining Bob David Moore yesterday. I always love to hear from him to chat about that pass rush, what the Seahawks have done this offseason. Here was Schlereth. A couple of things with the the lack of pass rush for the Seahawks. They had 28, so they were second to last. Only the Dolphins had less. But, man, I I don't know how many times you saw this, but when I went back through the games, the ball was coming out so fast. The the best pass rushing team in the league is not going to get home because, you know, it just uh, they just played a really – I mean, they played together. And, And I'll say this. Look, they played defense well enough to win 12 games. Right. I mean, I, I feel like they did not want to get beat over the top. That was the number one priority. If you were going to go down the field, and this is a team that did take the ball away. I think they were third in the NFL as far as takeaways go. That um, you know, there. But 
you know, they played very safe. There wasn't a lot of aggressive coverage. So, you know, for that reason, there was a lot of times where there just wasn't really time to get to the quarterback. I thought that owed, and I don't remember them seeing it that way in the past. Certainly not, you know, in the Legion of Boom era where they would just man up guys and play press up on the line and, you know, the ball was, uh, you know, gonna, gonna sometimes come out a lot later because everybody was covered. I think one of the other things, you know, and, and I agree with you, like you look at like when you had the Legion of Boom, and I think, um, you know, you look at the, the position of safety in this league, and, you know, it's, it's funny how, how from a positional standpoint, we, like, they evolve, and the importance becomes, the importance of, of guys just becomes greater. The, the guy in the middle of the field, that can just read and erase plays um, has become so because it's so you know between the twenties it's so eight man front safety drop down you know playing a lot of zone stuff four across but th- that that is a very prevalent factor and if you don't have somebody in the middle of the field that can erase things it's really hard to play some of that stuff so I'm with you. From the aggressive standpoint, you want to put a lot of pressure on quarterbacks. You've got to be able, you know, you got to be able to obviously to rush them, to make them hold the ball. And to do that, you've got to disrupt the routes and you got to hold guys up. And, um, and I will say this though, the linebackers that they have, I'm, I'm a huge, a huge fan of KJ Wright and, and Kendricks and obviously Bobby Wagner. They are, they are phenomenal. And I understand why. You know, they feel like, hey, man, we want to play base to nickel because our three guys are really damn good. And so, you know, I get that part of it. And I'm with you. You won 12 games. It's a, it, it, that's a, a pretty, pretty tough task, especially in the NFC West where you had San Francisco playing the way they played and obviously the Rams and what they've done the last couple of years. And Arizona actually came on and played pretty well towards the end of the season, too. So I understand we want to be perfect at everything. It's, it's hard to be. Yeah, let me ask you this, Mark. Uh, we've just been getting a little bit of uh, some stuff up here from Colin Coward, who I respect. I think he's done a really good job. But I want to play a cut number six because all of a sudden it sounds like uh, Colin Coward feels like we're not using Russell Wilson here the right way. Pete Carroll's never been known as having kind of what you would call like Kyle Shanahan offense or Andy Reid creative play designing. That's not Pete's thing, right? He hands the offense over. So I, I think Russell has largely outperformed the schemes. And he's got 100 touchdowns in the last three years. That's touchdown passes. That's 15 more than the next closest quarterback, Tom Brady. He seems to contradict himself, Mark. <laughs> well, like, Colin will do that occasionally. Um, listen, <laughs> here's, what I love about, here's what I love about Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson doesn't care how you win as long as you get a chance to win. And he's one of the purest, as you guys know, deep ball passers that we've seen in this league. And he creates off that deep ball. But having conversations over the last couple of years with Pete Carroll, and I love it. Yeah, Pete Carroll was like, you. we had this conversation last year about the transition back to kind of pure 90s football where we're going to run, we're going to get multiple tight ends, we're going to get you with personnel groupings, right? We're going to jump in and out of, you know, 21 and 22 and 12 and, 
then 11, and then we're going to get you with personnel groupings. We're going to get you with those matchups. But essentially, we're going to bludgeon you. And then, you know, we're going to condense to throw, you know, to throw deep. We're going to spread to run the ball. Like, it's getting back to some of that. And you look at, like, look at the playoff teams. And I know sometimes these numbers get skewed. I'm not a big numbers guy. But I think seven of the top ten rushing teams in football went to the playoffs. Three of the top ten passing teams went to the playoffs. And I know if you get behind, you have to throw it a lot. But there's something about controlling the line of scrimmage. There's something about playing that style of football that lends itself to, at the end of the year, being a playoff team and having a chance to win a world championship. Mark Schlereth on with Bob David Moore and uh, playing him some cuts from Colin Coward. But let's hear from the man himself who was on with Tom, Jake and Stacy earlier in the day yesterday. I, I have to ask you, you come on Seattle radio uh, and you gave a, a couple of pretty impassioned segments uh, last week about Russell Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks. And Cam Newton's name is thrown around as the backup potential backup quarterback. He doesn't end up getting signed. Geno Smith does, but it was thrown out there. Then there's this huge conversation about Russell Wilson potentially being traded to the Browns back in 2018. And what was what was your reaction when you first heard about these two things? And why why have you seemed to take the approach that you think this is disrespectful towards Russell Wilson? Well, I mean, I just think, you know, if you look at John Schneider, I like him. I think he's good. I don't think he's always polished with the media. I think he's a guy that just lets you rip, and that's good for our business. But somebody may have just, like, casually asked him about Cam Newton, and he should have shut it down. First of all, when you have a superstar on a team, you better be close to him, know him, be friends with him, and understand what makes him tick. Ciara dated Cam Newton. Does everybody know that? You're going to bring that in as the backup? And if John Snyder doesn't know that, that's his problem. You better know that. Secondly, he's a celebrity backup. Why would you bring a celebrity backup to Russell Wilson, who's a workaholic, doesn't need to be pushed, is never hurt? The minute they traded Max Unger for Jimmy Graham, is that's when I really thought to myself, Pete Carroll and John don't get Russell Wilson. This whole league is easy. Get a great quarterback, find a great coach, and then protect the quarterback with offensive line play. That's why Andrew Luck's out of the league. That's all you do is find a quarterback and protect him. Seattle has never had a good offensive line. Ever. They, they traded away Max Unger for a finesse basketball player slash tight end who never worked. They didn't do, didn't do their homework on Jimmy Graham. Jimmy Graham, they don't even run the same routes from the offense that Jimmy Graham ran in New Orleans to get open. So... I don't think they get Russell. I don't think they respected him. I think Russell deserves far more impact on the offensive game plans. I think Pete's a brilliant defensive coach and has a great eye for personnel, and I think Pete's smart. But I think he should relinquish some of the offense, update it. Um, You're in the division with Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan. You better allow Russell Wilson to have a much bigger say, much bigger say in the offense. And I just don't think – I don't think – I just don't like the idea of these stories coming out. He, can you imagine? Seriously, Aaron Rodgers' story comes out today. Cam Newton back up. Oh, good hell. I mean, <laughs> the whole world would explode. I mean, it would be unbelievable. What if the story broke? Here was a prime example. 
there was a rumor that Cam was going to go to the Steelers. An hour later, Kevin Colbert, the GM, came out and said, not true, Ben's our guy, zero chances happen. That thing floated out with, with Russell Wilson. Wasn't a single person for the Seahawks that said, that's stupid, it's not happening. I don't think they get Russell. I don't think they appreciate him. They say they do. Their actions tell me they don't. Stuff leaks in the media when somebody wants it out or they're sloppy and lets it out. I mean, if my company's going to get rid of me, you're not going to see rumors out there that, you know, unless they really are going to get rid of me, you're not going to see a bunch of rumors floating out. You put an end to that stuff. I mean, I've been in this business 30 years. Nothing gets out unless somebody either allows it or wants it out. The Cam Newton story should never even have that should, if, if I'm a GM and that is even brought up, I would literally say to the reporter, what? We're one of the best players in the world. What do I, what do I want a celebrity backup for? But no, the story floats and ends up in a paper. And I, I just, I just don't think they respect Russell Wilson. I never have. I, I don't, they just don't think they understand what they have. Colin Coward, full interview from him, available at 710sports.com. Could it also be that people are starved for content at this point? Maybe. We tend to hear a lot of these rumors around this time. Coming up next on The Blitz, it's the hot list. Dallas Cowboys defensive end Alden Smith has reportedly been granted conditional reinstatement by the NFL. What does this mean for him and his time with the Cowboys? It's next in the hot list right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. Alaska Airlines Studio. This is the Blitz. It's time for the Hot List. Holy mackerel! The headlines for the day in sports every morning at six forty-five. Heck yes! What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go! Dallas Cowboys defensive end Alden Smith has reportedly been granted conditional reinstatement by the NFL after an indefinite suspension for violation of the league's personal conduct and substance abuse policies. That allows him to join meetings and take part in some of the off-season programs, virtual, albeit for now, with Cowboys coaches and teammates, their virtual off-season beginning uh, Tuesday of this week. 30-year-old Smith has not played in an NFL game since he was suspended as a member of the Raiders in 2015 because of legal and substance abuse issues, uh, but now able to at least join in the offseason part of, of this year with, with the Cowboys. Edwarder, who uh, covers the Cowboys, speaking on them being able to count on or wanting to count on Smith. Well, you know, one of the things when they made the first-round draft pick at 17 for wide receiver CeeDee Lamb because... He was so high on their board, sixth overall. They bypassed the second-best pass rusher in the draft and the guy they kind of targeted in uh, Kalevon Chason from LSU. So that meant they were counting more on Randy Gregory and Alden Smith to be reinstated. And to your point about the perspective and what to expect from Alden Smith, you know, really, who knows? It's going to be fascinating to watch because... Alden Smith hasn't played a 16-game season since 2012 and hasn't been on the field for more than half his team's defensive snaps since 2013. It's been a while, yep, and uh, a history of legal troubles for Smith uh, throughout the years, but now able to join the Cowboys squad. Lakers forward Jared Dudley said it's a bit of a misconception that the NBA would resume its season in a bubble location that's so closely monitored that players would be restricted from exiting the premises until all the games were finished. 
Um, they bubble, bubble biosphere sort of theory of that we had heard. The NBA considering a two-site format to return to play in Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida, and in Las Vegas, according to ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski. Uh, Dudley said there will be rigorous testing inside the bubble, which Silver has sort of likened to a campus-type environment, but says there's still some misconceptions about it. Here was Jared Dudley on a conference call with the Lakers forward speaking on not being trapped. I think that people are getting a misconception. It's not. It's going to be a bubble in, this, in, in a sense of, hey, here's going to be or your hotel where you stay at. Here's going to be the gym where you're playing at. But you will be allowed to leave. Michelle Roberts have said it, and even Adam Silver on the conference call. Now, just because you leave, you know, like if we're going to give you that leeway, if you come back with Corona, you can't play. Some players who don't want to come back, according to Dudley, don't realize the ramifications. For sure. There has been people that have voiced it, not only to the media, but behind the scenes. And they, they haven't been well educated and gotten the information they needed to be able to make the right proper statement. And that's for one on the union, one on the league, because the league is so hush-hush and trying to do protocol and don't want anything to leak where we haven't really gave, hey, you see, I, I saw Rachel Nichols and Brian Windhorst said a $900 uh, billion they could potentially lose and that happened in playoffs. Well, players don't know, no, that affects the salary cap for next year. If we don't play this year, then they can force majeure. It'd be a total new CBA. Your guaranteed contract wouldn't be guaranteed. Force majeure, man. The act of God uh, element of those contracts that, yes, is included in the uh, CBA for the NBA. Jared Dudley always talking, also talking about and making a timely comparison, um, saying that every team has a Rodman of sorts that will break the rules of the bubble, the quarantine rules. Of course, the last dance airing on Sunday, and we've been able to get quite the peek at Dennis Rodman and some of uh, the leniency that the Bulls gave him. But here was Jared Dudley making that comparison. Well, when you're dealing with 300 different players, and if you've seen a Jordan, Do- if you've seen a Jordan documentary, Every, if every team got a Rodman. He just doesn't have green and blue hair. There's always someone who does outside the box, who does that, takes the risk and says, hey, listen, man, I'm healthy. I feel good. So the so the, uh, the the important thing will be how does the league respond if someone does, in fact, has positive. That That's the question that is posed to all of the major sports leagues right now. Jeff Passan speaking about Major League Baseball and the possible return. Uh, he was on Sports Center yesterday and mentioned that money still holding up everything at this point. The money is what's holding everything up right now. And Major League Baseball is saying we are going to be in dire financial straits if we have to pay you your full prorated salaries. And the players are saying in a March agreement that we had with you, it says we will get our full prorated salaries. So it's coming down to cash at this point. And the question is, are they going to be able to figure it out? Buster only also yesterday saying the players should take a step back, look at the larger picture. Well, here's the reality of where the players sit. Let's say that um, you know they stand on principle and they squeeze the owners in this moment. You know and I know when the leverage pendulum switches back in the fall or in the fall of 2021 when the uh, CBA expires, the owners will be coming. <laughs> And in the recent years, we've seen the value of free agency really be diminished for the players. I think if they could uh, negotiate some mechanisms which help the free agents for this fall, and by the way, you know, as teams look to offset financial losses from this year, that obviously is not going to involve the young players who don't get paid that much. It does involve the players who have existing multi-year contracts. Who are the guys who are going to pay for that? It's the free agents. It's the guys who are 30 years old and they hit the open market. And teams are like, nope, sorry, don't have that money. 
So if the players could parlay their uh, leverage of the moment into helping out those free agents in the fall of 20 and 21, I think that'd be really valuable for them. Jeff Passan also speaking yesterday on how much time is left for the MLB to reach a deal. The proposal we heard voted by the owners involved an 81-game regular season, so half the season, and estimated uh, a June start time. But here's Jeff Passan breaking down the timeline. Well, we're talking about a proposed June 10th or so start to spring training. And the way that it would get phased in is pitchers would come first and then players. And so it it would be a gradual thing to build up. And you'd have about three weeks of spring training until you have games at the beginning of July. So if we just count backward, in people's minds, a deal needs to be struck at latest by the end of May. If there's not something on the table signed by June 1st, we're not going to have baseball as early as they were hoping. And that is a very loud ticking clock right now. How are things going in the NFL? They obviously have the benefit of a little bit more time and not trying to um, have negotiations, at least at this time. So Kevin Seifert of uh, ESPN talking about the NFL paying attention to other sports during this return process. I think they'll, they'll definitely pay attention to that. I think they're also paying attention, uh, frankly, just as much, if not more, to Major League Baseball or the NBA uh, and, and possibly the NHL, who, who seem to have, a, you know, obviously they're, they're trying to get their season started before football season would start, and, and really seeing how they're going to test. How are you, you going to do the things that we talked about in the beginning? How are, we, how are they going to be able to... Um, reasonably ensure that the people on the court are not infected in, in basketball or you know, the people on the ice in hockey or the people on the field in baseball are not infected. And also, when if they do find uh, you know, somebody who's infected, how, how are they, what processes are they using to get them away from everybody else? So I think they're looking at that. Um, they know that the issues facing themselves in terms of the business side of the NFL and colleges, the business side of colleges are much different. Uh, college football obviously is very contingent on whether students are going to be, at least it seems right now, whether students are going to be on campus, um, you know, and, and all the things that go into amateurism and the rules there. The NFL does not have those particular obstacles, so uh, those are things that colleges are going to have to deal with that the NFL doesn't really apply to the NFL. Perfect segue for us to discuss college. We heard from Ohio State Athletic Director Gene Smith. He said that his athletic department, uh, not only considering the prospect of having football in the fall, but having it with fans in the stands. They've run several social distancing models to consider having fans in the stands at games this fall. And they believe that OSU Stadium can have a safe fan environment, um, normally a capacity over 100,000, but could hold in accordance with guidelines, uh, a, cro- a crowd closer to twenty to 22,000 fans while still following CDC guidelines, social distancing recommendations. How about the rest of college football? Well, Laura Rutledge, Laura Rutledge ESPN host, saying this isn't a new idea that a lot, of, a lot of schools have talked about this possibility of having fans because, as we know, college football, it's not just football that's dependent on those revenues. It's a ton of other athletic programs. Gene Smith didn't just pull this out of a hat because it's definitely being talked about amongst ADs and amongst these decision makers and has been for a while. I think there were some that were bullish on the idea of, no, we're just going to 
prepare as if we're having full capacity fans and that that's how we're going to operate and then more and more <laughs> people are realizing you know that may not be possible maybe it is and, and maybe it is in some places and in other places you have to see social distancing in stadiums and there's tons of plans of how they might do this some people i've talked to have said you know they would try and require all fans to wear masks that you can't necessarily legally do that in some of these states it just depends on how all of these lawmakers are operating in various states Laura Rutledge also saying the majority of presidents in the SEC will likely vote to open and uh, could be as soon as June 1st for some places that the NCAA, as we've heard, doesn't want to come out and make a universal rule for when schools can reopen. They're leaving it up to the local governments. But that means that there likely won't be a fair competitive advantage for certain schools or even certain conferences. Um, Heather Dinich also bringing up the point yesterday that nobody knows exactly what happens if someone tests positive. That's an important part of this process. Well, it starts with the cost. Dr. Brian Hainlein, the NCAA's chief medical officer, told me that right now, as of today, they range between $100 to $150, and that conferences and possibly the individual schools would likely have to pay for that. But that's cost. There's also feasibility. And the one question that nobody is able to answer for me as I do these interviews is what happens if somebody tests positive. I had one athletic director say to me, what happens if our quarterback gets infected? He's in a room with every other quarterback meeting and our quarterback's coach, who might also be the offensive coordinator. So is contact tracing important? Absolutely, because everyone that person comes into contact with would probably have to be quarantined, and that might be your entire quarterback depth chart. Yeah, cost and feasibility, one thing on getting those tests and widespread testing being available, but then also the fact uh, that there isn't a plan in place, at least as of now, a lot of places for what happens if someone tests positive. The Seahawks offered reportedly Pro Bowl running back Devonta Freeman a one-year contract, according to ESPN's Vaughn McClure. He tweeted out yesterday, quote, source confirmed, former Falco Devonta Freeman has a one-year offer from Seattle. will be interesting to see if he's in a Seahawks uniform for the opener at Mercedes-Benz Stadium against his ex-teammates. Not clear if Seattle's offer is still on the table at this point, but he could add some depth in that backfield. Chris Carson working back from injury. Pete Carroll optimistic about his return and being ready to go week one, but less so about Rashad Penny, who also suffered a season-ending injury. That's a wrap for the Hot List and the entire Blitz 6 Hour. Danny and Gallant coming your way next right here on 710 ESPN Seattle.